Happy post-election uh, day, folks. Thank you for joining me for the final episode of uh, Meet Me in the Middle, an XN radio podcast dedicated on fostering a positive political dialogue. So when you're hearing this message, it's going to be uh, right after the midterm elections. We're recording this on October 15th, so we're a, bit, a little bit over uh, half a month away from this uh, election, so anything could be happening that now. Let us hope that the Russians have preserved our existence. We are not a radiated wasteland. Uh, here's hoping. So today I got my uh, my dear friend and favorite professor at MBI, uh, Professor Aaron Frankenfeld, on to talk about uh, electoral reform. Well, I know that an idea that you've been fond of, third party. Uh, yeah, I... I don't like the Democrats. I don't like the Republicans. Here, here. I think we need to. I think at least in twenty four, there stands a good chance to maybe start a, start the good a, a good concrete push towards a third party. Yeah. So there seems to be a market for a third party. About more than sixty percent of Americans don't want uh, Donald J. Trump or Joseph Biden to run uh, for the nomination uh, next uh, major election. So there seems to be a big influx. Um, Similarly to maybe uh, the 92 election, similar when uh, Ross Perot ran against uh, Clinton and Bush, to where we could maybe have a contender that stands a fair amount of chance or at least enough traction for a third party to beat out some Republicans and Democrats in key congressional races. Yeah, it could be. I mean, with respect to the market, I, I found a, a survey that we had talked about before, right, where somebody had, had asked, which political party do you trust to do a better job handling? And they listed a bunch of issues, Right. And they, they, they asked about abortion, climate change, the pandemic, gun violence, immigration, taxes, Russia, Ukraine, the economy, gas prices, inflation, and crime. And of all of those issues, there were only two that people trusted the Democrats to handle. There were only two that people trusted the Republicans to handle. But with respect to climate change, with respect to taxes, to gas prices, to inflation, to crime, and to Russia, Ukraine, the winning answer was neither. Wow. More people trust none of the above to handle those issues than Republicans or Democrats. So there's certainly a hunger for something outside the Republican-Democrat binary axis. I think that's fair. The question of whether or not a third party can get us there is an interesting one. One of the things that, again, I mean, if we consider comparative politics and see how it might work somewhere else, right? Again, the United Kingdom uh, is an excellent comparison because the United Kingdom parliamentary system is currently structured, uh, relies upon what we call single member districts, right? Many parliaments worldwide, you vote for a party and then the parliament is divided up by a percentage basis and they get X number of seats. In the United Kingdom, you live in a local district and you vote for your member of parliament. So you're voting for a person, not a party. The United Kingdom has multiple parties depending how you want to look at it, three or four major parties. And what we see is that in times of growing dissatisfaction, it seems like the liberal democratic party. So the the left-wing party, the more, well, the more leftish major party is the labor party. Mm -hmm. The right-wing major party is the conservative party. Liberal democratic would be in the, or liberal conservatives would be in the center, right? That's what it's called? Well, they don't don't have a liberal conservative party that's a major party. Your, Your main three are the, the conservatives, the labor, and the liberal Democrats. Liberal Democrats. That's what they're yep. called. The Lib Dems. And the Lib Dems, they're, they're not 
they're not totally in the middle. They have a libertarian bent that sometimes mm. makes them kind of extreme. Uh, however, their their fortunes ebb and flow. You always in parliament, you have a large number of Tories. That's the conservatives. You have a large number of labor. And sometimes in times of growing dissatisfaction, you have large numbers of Lib Dems. Other times you have very few. Right now, there are very few liberal Democrats. And, and the idea is very few voters will switch historically between conservative or labor. Conservative voters who are unhappy vote Lib Dem. Labor voters who are unhappy vote Lib Dem. So it ends up being this buffer that draws the dissatisfied from either party, and then no one has to switch back and forth. And that seems like a, a useful release valve or useful mechanism, right? In a time of intense polarization, we might not expect Republicans, uh, the true MAGA Republicans, to be able to vote for a Democrat socialist that they believe is going to destroy America. But maybe you don't have to vote for the Democrat. Maybe you can vote for someone else, that third party. That It's an attractive idea. There's enough for every flavor. Well... At least there's an extra choice. Yeah. At least there's an extra choice. Now, the, the problem historically with that is, would be that usually third, party, third parties draw the most excitement about a presidential candidate. And if you ran a third party presidential candidate, and if we imagine the 2024 election is Trump-Biden, what happens with a third party presidential candidate is it almost guarantees a Trump victory. It does not have any shot, there is no way that a third party candidate is going to win the presidency. And if you look at which party is more likely to be injured by a third party candidate, The Democrats. The Democrats tend to feel very, very mild about Joe Biden, whereas the Republicans who like Trump aren't going anywhere. They want Trump. So what ends up happening, you run a third party, is Trump wins. There's a number of games as well. Uh, Trump what, commands 32, 36% of the Republican Party. If we split up an election uh, three ways, uh, 36 could very well be a good starting base or close to a majority enough to win. You have Biden lose support. Let's say, I don't know who would run a good independent campaign against Biden. I don't think anybody would anybody would try a third-party run. He definitely probably is going to get primaried. Yeah, he'll, he'll get primaried. The question is... Will it matter? If it's uh, Newsom or Pritzker, maybe. Uh, I think it'll be one of those two. I think they'll run. I think they'll run. I, I, I have my doubts that either one of them has a prayer. The, the issue is that Biden's ascendancy in the 2020 primaries was largely due to support from the African-American community. And I don't see why that base for Joe Biden would abandon him for Pritzker or for Newsom. Mm, that's true. I'm not saying that every African-American vote is in the tank for Biden, but I don't see why they would be more likely to vote for Pritzker or for Newsom. Now, if Cory Booker ran against him... That, that could stand if, a chance. It, it, there, there are other options out there, and, and that would be interesting. But I don't know. I don't know. If Andrew Yang's forward party, for example, runs a presidential candidate, it won't matter. <laughs> because whoever comes out of that Democratic primary is losing, along with the Ford Party candidate to Trump. Actually, they're not running a candidate in 24, so that's going to help. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's, I'm glad to hear that. A, different, a little bit of a different strategy than uh, the Libertarians or uh, the Party for Socialism and Liberation or whatever you you got. Yeah, so, so that's what matters with, with the third parties. They need to run congressional candidates. Yes. And they need to build the base from congressional candidates. 
because uh, a lot of what we talk about is polarization and a lot of the frustration that people have developed with government in the United States has to do with what happens in the House and what happens especially in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And you don't need that large of a voting block within the United States Senate to totally transform the functioning of the American government. So I, I would love it if a third party could take five seats in the Senate. Ten seats would be the dream because if a, if a third party took ten seats in the Senate, the filibuster's done you, you, without eliminating the filibuster. I, I happen to think that there's, there's benefit and there's value to the filibuster, to, to preserving the position of minorities and the opportunity of minority parties to slow the functioning of government down. Uh, but if you had, if you had a third party, then you couldn't always rely on the filibuster. Mm -hmm. I always felt, I never, I didn't really want Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court, but I always felt the man deserved an up or down vote. I always felt it should have come to a vote and been yeah. voted down. With a third party, you probably get that vote. Yeah. So I like that thought. Now uh, Merrick gets the uh, privilege of in indicting the first uh, president. Uh, probably. If, uh, looks like it's going to happen. Yeah, Franklin Fair has an art article in The Atlantic right now. I read that one a couple of days yeah. ago, yeah. Which I, I, he, he's arguing, if you haven't read it, uh, very hard that Merrick Garland is almost assuredly going to indict Trump. And actually, disclosures in the past week about what's going on or with the, the Mar-a-Lago raid uh, do seem to make that seem likely. But I did notice that Franklin Fair doesn't have any evidence. Yeah, it's it was all anecdotal. It was all anecdotal, and it was all instinctual and intuition. Mm, gotta love that. Yeah, not a sound base for public policy, <laughs> but, but definitely some good writing. Nonetheless, he painted a good story. It is a good story. If good he was story. writing some uh, political fiction, this this would be it. Yeah, but indictment of Trump doesn't matter. The question is, would there be a conviction? Indictment doesn't render yeah. render him ineligible to run for office. Indictment actually really functionally changes nothing. Oh, it does change something. It motivates his base more. If they think their Probably. Messiah is about to be crucified, I mean, I wouldn't put him past them to be more willing to use more violent force to overthrow the system that's going to kill their Messiah. Well, that's fair. That's fair. And that risk, again, of, of violence is there. It's crazy times we live in. But you know another question I have about that? Going back to the role of social media in all of this, we talk about the role of social media contributing to polarization, and implicitly, when we say that, we're talking specifically about Facebook and Twitter. Maybe Instagram, but I'm pretty confident we're talking Facebook, Twitter, and True and social, a, and a few ni few niche sites. Right? We're not talking about TikTok. Mm. Oh. We would even consider that. Yeah, and, and I am interested in the influence that TikTok will have on political polarization. Historically, recent history, TikTok's not that old, TikTok was for cute dancing videos, which would seem to depressurize polarization and would seem to distract people from political engagement. But now that you have longer videos and you can do more with it... There are opportunities even to exploit TikTok for polarization. During the pandemic, there was an increase in a lot of anti-vax and uh, COVID denial, uh, denialism on the TikTok platform that did radicalize a lot of people to that kind of camp. So, I mean, you got those uh, subversive uh, sources in there that are going to push things uh, radical. You have an election going on that does attack identity and promote a lot of opportunity for combat. I wouldn't put it past uh, TikTok for it to become a cesspool for uh, very... Uh, pro-Trump propaganda in certain niche circles of the platform. But I guess you could argue the same thing on both sides. Uh, if you have uh, somebody compelling on the Democratic side who inspires our uh, progressives, 
to get motivated. You could see a lot more of a rise in a radicalism on that side. You could, but see, and here's where TikTok differs from Facebook and Twitter, even with respect to radicalization, right? On Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, another one we should mention that has historically played a major role here. Oh, yeah. The algorithm that pushes people towards radicalization is profit-driven. Mm. The goal is to keep people engaged, get them to consume more advertising, and in doing that... Make more money. Yeah, yeah. you make more money, they become more radical, everybody wins, right? But TikTok, because of the Chinese influence and the fact that algorithms are always proprietary, TikTok has, in a way that no other social media has, has the opportunity to be deployed for radicalization and for propaganda. The algorithm could begin showing people the videos that push them in the direction that China most desires them to go. Probably towards more populism and destabilization. Probably towards more destabilization. However, uh, the Chinese government has historically preferred order, and there is a value for the entire world in predictability within American politics. Yes. So, does the Chinese government think the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is more useful in this way or in that way? I don't know, and I don't know that it will be the same in every single election. I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know, but this is... I know that a lot of people I know have really poo-pooed the, the question of Chinese influence over TikTok, but this is why the question of foreign government influence over a social media algorithm is so important, that there are factors at play within the polarization of the electorate that are not necessarily incidental. They can be intentional. Russia probably exploited social media for, to advance polarization in key ways. I. I cannot prove it. I'm not really given to conspiracy theories, but I do believe that the United Kingdom left the EU because of Russia. Because of Russian interference online, I, I think that the I think the vote was free. I think the vote was fair. I think that Russia tricked people and and got them into voting against their own interests. the The margins were close enough. You didn't have to move that many people to influence the outcome of that election, and that has totally upended British society. Yes, uh, as we said. Uh, has potentially re-inflamed tensions in Northern Ireland. Like, the ramifications of that will continue to play out for decades. But at any rate, this is one reason why foreign interference in uh, social media, foreign influence over social media becomes so dangerous. There are aspects of polarization that are not just incidental. There are aspects of polarization that are probably being exploited for malign purposes. And the solution to that is engage less with in, social media. I was going to say internet censorship. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's always going to be somebody. Yes, yes. There's always going to be somebody. Uh, Elon Musk is buying Twitter, and Elon Musk just this week has suggested that he's going to uh, functionally kneecap the Ukrainian army by taking down their communications network, which, wow. he, which he has put up, right? That would completely destabilize uh, Ukraine's defenses. It would completely alter, potentially, uh, the balance of global power and... Elon Musk has that power, and he's apparently willing to do it, and he has suggested it's because he didn't like something that the Ukrainian foreign minister tweeted at him. Of which we probably can't repeat on here. But. Won't repeat on here. No, we'll we'll no. go with that. But the, the idea here is, do I know that Elon Musk wouldn't manipulate Twitter and manipulate Twitter's uh, algorithm to get outcomes that he personally prefers? No, I don't know that. Uh, I wouldn't bet that he would not do that. The man seems just a profoundly unhinged narcissist. Yes. So, again, you can say we can regulate it, you can say we can censor it, 
But the problem is that the, the profit mechanisms here depend on these proprietary algorithms. And I don't know how, without nationalizing social media, you do that. And if you do nationalize social media, then you have state actors in other countries can't trust the algorithms themselves. Mm-hmm. The answer is to spend less time on social media. I, I know everyone always comes up with reasons why that's not true, but I don't see another, I don't see any other recommendation to make. I am slow to give many praises towards our uh, former president, but mm-hmm. the greatest thing Donald J. Trump did was ban TikTok. Uh, that was the, his greatest contribution to a greatest positive contribution to American society. Too bad it didn't it didn't work, but. Say what, you, say what you will about the man, that was his greatest accomplishment. That is his legacy. <laughs> he almost single-handedly saved that part of American society. Almost. Yeah, the key there is almost. Yeah. Uh, half-baked ideas <laughs> were his specialty. He, he tried his best. What, what, else, what else can I say? What else can we ask for? Half-baked ideas were his specialty. Uh In talking about the role of social media in all of this, mm-hmm. right? One thing that that I I read a model that somebody suggested to me is the the expansion of social media is itself a problem in a way that I had never considered, right? Mm-hmm. If the algorithms promote engagement, and if you have time to consider fifty people's opinions to be shown fifty people's opinions, and there are only fifty users on a particular social media uh, app, then you have a good you're able in that time to take the temperature of everybody. You know where everybody's at. You have a good sense of what people in the world think. If that grows by a factor of 10 and now they have 500 users and you still have time to look at 50, they're going to show you the 50 most provocative ideas. And now your sense of where the world is at is actually being guided by the 10% who are the most angry, the most upset, the most extreme. Now, if multiply that by a factor of 10, you're being guided by 1%. Multiply it by 10, you're being guided by 0.1%. But it just magnifies the voice. It magnifies the reach of the angriest people out there. And that's a a built-in problem with social media that I I see no way around. And again, the antidote to that is to know people in real life, to know people offline, to understand the complexities of their problems, to understand how they're doing, and, you know, to, to bring us back around. From the perspective of the church, that is one of the most important roles that church should be playing in people's lives. It's the place for real community. It's the place in which we're supposed to know who our neighbor is. We're supposed to love our neighbor. And it's the place where we're supposed to be known in community. And I, I do think that the polarization that we see is, I've talked about it as an indictment of the history of discipleship and the history of what the church has done. I also recognize it as an opportunity. Many places, I feel, churches are not sure what their role is supposed to be in this this newly polarized America. But I feel like the answer is right there in front of us. It's the place to be a loving, forgiving, countercultural witness, a reminder of what being human can be like, should be like, rather than what we see it being like on Twitter and on Facebook and wherever else. A sort of anti-environment to the uh, internet ecosphere of sorts. Yes. Which, of course, if the polarization, if the question of identity and of combat uh, is idolatrous, as I suggested earlier, then of course the church should be pushing back on that idolatry. But the way to push back isn't with more anger. It's not with more propositions. It's not with more argumentation. The way to push back is with more love and with more listening. 
It's with actual friendship. It's with giving people face time. Time. Face to face. Unfortunately, it seems like the pandemic has pushed churches towards more electronic engagement rather than more face to face. And the church going generation is beginning to die. So that's also going to affect it. Well, it is, but I also know a lot of young people who struggle with anxiety and who struggle with feelings of loneliness and, and, and isolation. And, Most do. And what they need is to be known and loved in community. The problem is churches have been so bad at that across age lines. Because, I mean, for as much as we've talked about demographics and, and, and trends that are taking place, we haven't even talked about the role of, of age and generational cohort in political behavior. But... The younger people are, the less affiliated they are with anything that, that's out there. The less affiliated they are with Republicanism, the less affiliated they are with Democrats, uh, and the less affiliated they are with church. So you have this massive subset of people who are out there feeling lonely, and the church needs to be better at going out and getting them and loving them. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've been in contexts where, where churches I've been a part of have been much more interested in just pretending that it's still 1995 and and trying to stretch the 90s out as long as they can, rather than living the life of transgenerational love and community that the church has to have. But when we find a church that does that, you find a church that's transforming lives, that's dialing the temperature back, dialing it down on all the anger and all the polarization, and that is able to disciple and form people and do everything that the kingdom should be doing. So if the day after the election... You are frustrated with the electoral outcomes. My advice to you is go find a Christian brother or sister and love them. That's the way forward. Yes, that is. That really is. Not complaining on Twitter, not complaining on whatever we're using. I don't know. At the end of the day, we're not going to be able to change the election results in a grand scope of things. I mean, if most of our listeners are Moody students, they're going to Illinois. It's a blue state. And it's going to stay blue probably until the end of time. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. Um, but we can't change the colors on a map. We can't change our community. We can't change the people around us and the people we interact with. And if you change your small community, that'll cascade. Eventually, you could change this whole society just by changing your culture and your attitude here. I'd say that's the real way you reclaim the culture, or whatever us evangelicals like to say. I think of it, the kingdom is supposed to be salt, it's supposed to be light. But each church, I think of, I, I try to think of it as an actual kingdom. And each church is an outpost. It's a fort within the kingdom, right? But so also should each Christian's home. Each Christian's dorm room should be an outpost within the kingdom. And the thing to do when you become, whether you're discouraged or not, the thing to do when you're frustrated and when you're not frustrated is to tend to the health and safety of your outpost of the kingdom. And by safety, I don't mean, you know, arm yourself and take advantage of your Second Amendment rights and be ready to shoot any. No. By safety, I mean make sure that this is a place where the things of God can breathe, can thrive. Make sure that this is a place where people will find forgiveness. Make sure that this is a place where people will find love. Make sure that this is a place where people will have words of Scripture breathed into their life. Make sure that this is a place where the kingdom thrives as the outpost it's supposed to be. And, of course, all of our outposts, as in any healthy kingdom, should be networked. You know, I wanted to get into You mentioned earlier uh, when you are talking about third parties, you said there was like a, a way— 
way of seeing it that you didn't see mentioned a lot um, in the readings you've done. I'd love to get into, into more of that. Well, again, it goes back to targeting uh, exclusively congressional districts rather than targeting a big nationwide movement. Mm-hmm. Even if you were willing to start a third party as a largely regional movement, it could have the kind of national impact you're seeking without having to – well, look, in order to run nationwide campaigns, the amount of money required oh is staggering, staggering. In order to truly start up a third party that can be competitive everywhere all at once, you're going to need billions of dollars, and they're going to need to be billions of dollars that are spent well. Mm-hmm. A third party doesn't have that. Well, a third party doesn't have it, and, have it, and whisper this, but political consultants are not the type of people you can just hand millions of dollars and assume that it will go well. Uh, Political consultants, <laughs> they like to live well, but that's not necessarily what the money is for, mm-hmm. right? So so these are some of the challenges. You, you need to be able to go door to door. You're going to have to have uh, petitions and, and write-in campaigns in order to get candidates onto ballots in the first place. You have to be able to put offices nationwide. You, there, there are just so many costs, so many logistical hurdles that the idea of a nationwide third party is a little bit crazy. You could get there, but that's not where it starts. That is never where it starts. And so, you know, I always hear the model people go to, like you mentioned earlier, Ross Perot. Well, Ross Perot didn't really start a third party. He, he had a name. It was the Reform Party, and, and they talked about it. But essentially, Ross Perot had a vanity project that's one function was to deny George H.W. Bush a re-election. He succeeded in denying George H.W. Bush re-election. Uh, Clinton won the White House with one of the lowest percentages ever. He won a plurality, not a majority of the vote. And I think he may have been the first president elected with a plurality rather than a majority. I, I don't know, but I, I think that is true. Um, but there was no – after Perot disappears, what's really left of the Reform Party? I, I think they do technically still exist. No, I think they're gone. Um, I know it was – a. After that, it was talks of uh, Pat Buchanan running. Uh, maybe uh, Trump tried to run in twenty uh, uh, in two thousand. Uh, that flopped. Yeah, and I think they had some infighting because they were such a big tent that I think Trump was complaining that they had some socialists and Nazis in the party. He called uh, Pat Buchanan a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no comments. <laughs> I. At any rate, so the question is: if you want to start a third party of national influence, where does it start? You, you, it needs to be, number one, in the House, and number two, in the Senate. Now, winning an election to the Senate requires winning at least a plurality, and in some states, an outright majority, of the votes in an entire state. That's, that's a lot. That's a high bar. That's competing the, against two established parties with a lot of money. It's going to be labor-intensive, and it is going to be prohibitively expensive. Congressional races are not necessarily that way. But you, you have to look at where is the market for that. So I'm interested. I know that this is an idea you're excited about. So tell me, where where do you start? What Senate seat or, or what's the profile of the House seat that you should be targeting? You want places that probably I – don't, I don't know if this is a good idea, but you might probably want to target places that are more uh, purple in their affiliation uh, where it's kind of a mix. Um, that could be a good place. Uh, maybe you're seeing in Nevada. Uh, no, it's Utah. 
Uh, you got uh, Evan McMullen uh, running in the as an independent. The Democrats are endorsing him basically mm-hmm. to run against what's his name, Mike Lee, I think. Mike Lee. Uh, yeah. Mike Lee. So I mean, I, I don't know if we've at least in my lifetime we've if we've seen something like that. There's okay. not a lot of coverage on that. Well, I did read an article about it just yesterday. Okay, so there's coverage. As, as a there matter of fact, there's a little bit, but you have to be really interested in it, and I am. Yeah, I, I am really interested in what's going on in in Utah with that that Senate election. The the issue is the, the reason I read about it is that. Mitt Romney has refused to endorse anybody. Oh man! In, in that election, and and it would just be a thing where Mitt's not endorsing, and that's that. But Mike Lee keeps bringing it up and begging for an endorsement, which makes it weird. Yeah. <laughs> so probably I don't know what political advantage there is to reminding the voters of Utah that their beloved fellow Mormon senator hasn't endorsed you, but Mike Lee keeps doing it. And that's <laughs> I thought we didn't need Romney after we got Trump. I, yeah, I don't know. And Utah politics is its own world. But I, I, if I may, if I may, you suggested purple locations, and Utah is not purple. That's true. That's and, I, and I think that's part of the hole in the thinking. If you run a third-party candidate in a purple location, you're going to end up handing the election to Republicans time and time again. That's true. The places where the middle seems strongest are actually not the best places for a third-party candidate. It's the places where one party is dramatically stronger than the other. Because you introduce competition. You introduce competition. You're going to pull the extremist candidate towards the center, even if they win. But also, you probably have an entire party of disaffected voters that know they're not going to get what they want, right? Utah is incredibly red. And by being incredibly red, it has somewhere between 20 and 30 percent are probably Democrats. Well, that's 20 and 30% of the electorate that know they're not getting a Democrat. And so if they have to choose, they'd rather have Evan McMullen than, than Mike Lee. So you have that built-in base that you can just steal from the other party if you run in a deep blue or a deep red place. But So you have to go into the most polarized environments, I think. But I haven't really seen a lot of emphasis on that. But it's possible. It's theoretically possible. <laughs> We're here in Chicago. It's possible. It's possible. There are congressional seats in Chicago. I don't see. I think they're too blue. I don't see a third party candidate unseating. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I live in in. And here I'm ashamed to admit I don't know, remember if I'm in the ninth or the Illinois ninth or the Illinois tenth. I used to live in one, and now I live in the other. I know I'm the I'm in the eleventh, I think. Okay, but I I live in in Jan Schakowsky's district, and she is fabulously liberal. She she gets a pass because she's too old to be part of the squad, but she is way too liberal for me, way too liberal for my tastes. But I don't see the forward party winning that seat away from her, even though it's a deep blue district. There are a significant number of disaffected Republicans here, but I don't see them moving. Even if they did, I don't see it matter. They might just be too small to even, I don't want to say matter because that's kind of mean, but have much of an effect on elections. Maybe the base is just too small or the other side is just too hyper-motivated to stop somebody from winning. Yeah, but Chicago's notorious for that. We have a giant political machine here. We're we are known as the corruption city when it comes to politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but probably not Chicago for now. So, where even just thinking within our context, Illinois, where where do you think you run a successful or a a near miss? Right. Let's just say, where do you run a competitive 
candidate for the House? The suburbs. Okay. I'd say because you have a lot of Republican voters in the suburbs um, who do turn out to vote. Uh, the suburbs are are the key to Illinois elections. Uh, if you want a chance for a Republican to win the win the, win the, uh, the state, you need to win the suburbs. I don't think Darren Bailey is going to be able to do, pull that off. Um, but, uh, oh, for our listeners, Darren Bailey is the candidate who's running for a governor for the uh, Illinois election this time around. As a Republican. As a Republican. Yes. He's... You've probably seen the advertisements on YouTube. It's literally the only advertisements I see. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't get away from him. Not me because I never watch political videos on YouTube, so... <laughs> They don't send those my way anymore. Oh, you're so lucky. All the ads I've gotten is Darren Bailey's too extreme for Illinois. It does. It seems like they're endorsing him almost. Well, I mean, they're saying, "Oh, he's, he is he's the Republican candidate." Yeah, the, the, it says he's too pro. He's too anti-abortion. He's too uh, too conservative. I'm like, that doesn't seem to be a turnoff to people who'd vote for him. I mean, good. He introduced legislation in the Illinois House or Illinois Senate. I don't remember which. To excise the city of Chicago from Illinois, he wanted to kick Chicago out of Illinois, so that essentially what he wanted was to create a fifty-first state to gerrymander Illinois as a new red state. I mean, that just sounds like you're just giving the uh, Democrats an extra Senate seat. Well, no, because they've already got him. Oh, yeah, that's true. We we haven't. Mark Kirk recently was a Republican senator from Illinois. Mark Kirk is the only Republican senator I can remember from Illinois. <laughs> and he was one term. He was one term, yeah. yeah. Suburbs in Illinois probably be where a third party stands the best chance if we're talking about Illinois' context. Um, they could maybe shift uh, a congressional... Re- oh, but no, the suburbs are so gary- gerrymandered as well. Um, they tend to favor Democrats more so than Republicans. I mean, I don't, I don't know them. Yeah. Maybe, I would think maybe the west side suburbs, and I don't know which districts those are, but you have in the west side suburbs. See, see one of the things, and, and going back, right, if we're looking for the right place for this, looking at Utah, one of the things that I think makes Utah more available for a third party run is that I think identification with the Republican Party is weaker than identification with Mormon values for many of the voters. So that identity component is less in Utah, which increases the chances people will consider a different option. So you need, within districts you're looking for, not only do I think they should probably be heavily blue or heavily red, but they need to have a weaker identification with partisan politics for some reason. Mm -hmm. And the west side suburbs, you have uh, some some very, very, very highly educated population that have concerns that are not necessarily fully aligned with either party. Mm -hmm. They want lower taxes so they can keep more of their money, and they have historically voted very Republican. They also very often are raising families, and they care about child care policies and things like that, which the Republicans have just kind of given up on, except for Mitt Romney in recent years. Um, And so they're sympathetic to the Democrats. And so there's, there's this opportunity there to pull them away because their identity is not solidly in one party or another. But that's something you got to look for. Yeah. And a lot of the the outer uh, congressional districts in Illinois, outer meaning further away from Chicago, they're hard MAGA. That's true. They're not they're not moving. And the ones that are in Chicago, they're hard blue. They're not moving. 
you're looking for a district that's, I guess, ideologically purple, but electorally heavily blue or heavily red. Yes. I don't know. Utah benefits because they have that Mormon connection, that identity that transcends most other identities. I don't know if Illinois has anything like that besides maybe family and or union membership perhaps maybe. There might be an opening with ethnicity. Latinos probably, I'd assume. Latinos or, or even African Americans. Or both. Different different uh, other identity markers other than partisan politics. And and some of the strongest identity markers that we have in politics are going to be race and ethnicity. And religion. Yeah, but religion doesn't always follow geography the That's same way race and ethnicity do. Unless you're in Utah. But yeah, in, in Utah. Although, as I say that, perhaps a very Jewish third-party candidate could win my district. That's true. Because I do live in a district that includes, you know, I live in Skokie. There are significant Jewish populations that uh, have weak partisan affiliation because their primary allegiance is to their their religion or their culture. You know, some of them are, are culturally Jewish and some of them are uh, very devout. It's true. It's possible. I did read, actually, in Manhattan, the redistricting in New York had, had put Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, two longtime Democratic congressional representatives, in the same district. And so they had to compete against each other to see who would get to stay in Congress in a primary. And Gerald Nadler won, and one of the appeals that he made to the voters on the Upper West Side was, I am the only Jewish representative left in Congress from New York City. Shouldn't we have at least one Jewish representative? And I don't know if that carried the day or not, but he won. So that may actually may be an indicator, and it may be an indicator that Jerry Nadler's district <laughs> wouldn't be another place to run a third-party candidate. Mm-hmm. Well, all that to say, I still don't know if a third party really stands a chance, big picture, in, for congressional races. I mean, we'll see how this next this midterm goes. Uh, we'll see if the if the Democrats keep on getting less motivated for their party, Repo- Republicans gain motivation. Nonetheless, there's still the problem of people not feeling represented in their politics. I mean, what is it? How many how many Congress members do we have? It's five thirty something, right? 535. 535. 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate. Yes. You compare that to a population of, what, 300 million people? The numbers just don't add up in proportion. You have very limited representation. Uh, yeah, I've I've proposed. I'd prob- other people probably have proposed, too. I haven't encountered it in my, in my ecosystem yet, but it's a numbers game. Increase the, increase the size of the House of Representatives. Hmm. Uh, Increase the representation, have more districts, more localized districts, and then you can maybe reduce that sort of polarization and detachment from politics because your district member will have to, or your uh, congressman will have to actually interact with your district, district more instead of campaigning for such a wide, uh, broad a community. Could be. Could increase representation and the uh, the identification of of, of the local voter with their local representative. But one challenge that I see with that is what happens in a larger house or in a larger Senate. You 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 have a scenario, again, uh, the comp that immediately comes to my mind is in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. where they have uh, 700, give or take, I think it's a little bit under, uh, members in the House of Commons, and there's 
tons of people who are eligible to be in the House of Lords, right? But members of parliament in the United Kingdom, and again, the United Kingdom has a population that's well, maybe a quarter that of the United States, maybe more like a fifth. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but they have dramatically fewer people per member of parliament than we have per, per person in Congress. But you end up with a parliament where people don't know everybody. And because people don't know everybody in the parliament, it strengthens the hands of the parties mm. within the functioning of parliament. There's less opportunity for cross-bench or cross-aisle, cross-party collaboration. And for that reason, the politics in the houses are very, very partisan in a way that they often have been in the United States House of Representatives, but historically have not always been in the United States Senate. Uh, historically, the United States Senate kind of waxes and wanes in terms of how partisan it is and how collaborative it is. And... One of the reasons for that is because with at most 100 members, and often, again, in, in history, you had far less than 100 members in the Senate, you have opportunity to know the other senators and to be able to identify areas where you could work with someone whose politics you otherwise despise. And a smaller House of Representatives creates those opportunities. A larger House of Representatives will lose that. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I worry you run the risk of having a congressman who has a better sense, better feel for the pulse of their district. But in being one of 1,000 or 2,000 members of the House of Representatives has little option other than to just do the party line because they don't even know how to – it's too big to network and too big to break mm, out of. I can see that happening. Yeah, you're right. There's a, so there's a balance to be struck. There's, there's a size at which the House is too small. And there's a size at which the house is too big. And I don't know. Maybe bigger than 435 would work. Maybe smaller than 435 would work. It's an interesting question. But I don't think we can just... You don't I, want to make it huge. We'll put it that way. Regardless, if, even if we make it bigger, we'll probably have to build a new capital uh, at some point. Uh, yeah, the next one will probably have moats and walls. Yeah, and, uh, and machine gun posts too, probably. Yeah, guard towers. Uh, yep, yep. Um, okay, so that idea could work. It's flawed. We'd have to see. Um, the Electoral College is also a big um, contentious uh, issue. On one hand, it protects the representation of smaller states from being dominated in popular vote contests. On the other hand, a good ch chunk of the electorate is uh, disenfranchised by it. I've heard an interesting proposal. I don't really know how much merit is in it, but an idea of integrating a sort of electoral college concept uh, to smaller races as well when it comes to, to uh, st statewide races, governors uh, or uh, senators, where they have to win a plurality of a certain amount of votes to kind of get that electoral vote or something. I don't really know how to describe it too well because it's a fairly new idea I've heard. Um, but that aside, is the Electoral College worth keeping? I tend to say yes, but that is because I am a, a true conservative by nature. That's that's not to say that I agree with anything that modern politicians co-opt with conservative, mm -hmm. but I, I tend to be of the mindset, conserve that which we have mm -hmm. uh, unless there is an overwhelming and desperately apparent reason that it needs to be changed, right? Mm -hmm. Many of the amendments to the Constitution obviously had to happen. Mm -hmm. 
But junking the Electoral College, I, I don't think we entirely know what happens. Uh, if you game it out, I mean, uh, I assume you just replace the Electoral College with direct popular election. Yes. Okay. Or ranked choice voting, but we can get into that next time. So if you, if you do direct popular election, only George W. Bush, I think, would have won from the Republican side in my lifetime. That's true. 2000, yeah. 2004, he did win an actual majority of the votes. But he wouldn't have been running in 2004 because he would have lost in 2000. So you end up with no Republican winners in my lifetime. Or at least in the last 30, 40 years. Right? Probably, well, no, Reagan in 84 definitely would have won. Oh, yeah. Uh, but maybe not H.W. Bush in 88. No, probably not. But the party would have to change then in that case too because the competition would be different. I mean, Trump said it himself in 2016 after he won, if we had a popular vote system, he would have campaigned so differently. Yeah, Trump says a lot of things. Do I believe? Uh, yeah, that's I, true. I, I, I question anything involving Donald Trump and change, I question. Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and it seems like he's always been Donald Trump. So I I take that with a grain of salt. He knows the right thing to say, but that doesn't make it true. Uh, so how would the parties change? They'd be So naturally, the Republicans wouldn't be able to have their strategy of just uh, campaigning in rural districts in the... Fly over countries, call them whatever you want. Uh, they would have to moderate their positions. They wouldn't be able to be as conservative as they are now because you'd be competing directly with Democrats uh, who tend to lean more uh, liberal on a lot of issues. They'd have to moderate, be more uh, pro-immigration, uh, probably a little bit soft. Well, I don't know if they have to change their tone on guns. I think they could probably keep that. Uh, less culture war focused, more economic focused, appeal towards the uh, the taxpayer and saying, yeah, we can lower your, uh, your taxes. We can have a more... Uh, common sense economy, be more of a, uh, let's say, I don't want to say Mitt Romney-esque, but probably in that lane, lane of uh, Republicans where they did have, a, they did support a form of a, of a universal health care of sorts, uh, they'd probably have to become more conservatives like uh, conservatives in Europe would, would be uh, classified. Okay. Well, a lot of conservatives in Europe are fascist adjacent. Oh, See, conservative the the, the ide- ideological alignments of the parties in Europe are kind of exist on different axes. So a lot of them are kind of fascist adjacent, but at the same time they're more socially moderate. But so if if we game that out, here's what I'm assuming probably happens, right? So I think you're probably right. The Republican Party probably has to tack more to the center to be competitive. But as the Republican Party tacks more towards the center. I think, based on history, maybe not moving forward, I don't know, but based on history, I think that a lot of evangelicals drop out of the Republican coalition because tacking towards the center probably requires adopting social positions like abortion, on, on abortion, on gay rights, that a lot of evangelicals uh, aren't prepared to countenance and, and aren't thrilled with. And one option would be that evangelicals just drop out and quit participating altogether. Another would be that evangelical support becomes very tepid and unreliable. They're not highly motivated to vote anymore because a lot of evangelicals don't feel like their real concerns are being heard. Another possibility is maybe evangelicals just accept you lost the culture war and they vote on economic issues just like everybody else. I don't know how that plays out. But if in any way, shape, or form the evangelicals end up dropping out of the coalition, 
then where do the Republicans go to win an election? You know, I think they still find their support if they if they moderate. I think there's a lot of uh, Democrat. There's a lot of conservative Democrats who often vote in hand with uh, Republicans. So I don't necessarily think losing the evangelical vote would be that much of a in a popular vote system. I don't think it'd be that much of a a loss for them. Uh, it's just changing marketing strategies essentially. I mean, they probably have to incorporate more uh, minority votes, and I think they could gain a lot of minority votes by adopting. Uh, more uh, openness to immigration. If they add Puerto Rico as a state, Puerto Rico is probably going to trend more Republican because it's a more culturally uh, re- religious uh, kind of a area. It's heavily mm-hmm. Catholic, I think. Probably it's Hispanic. Nominally. Uh, nominally, yeah. They tend to be very uh, conservative in their culture, very uh, anti-abortion and all that. I could see that easily falling in line with Republicans. But if Republicans moderate on abortion, I... Maybe you'd have a very, very right-wing third party that's religious. That never wins. That never wins, but it's a spoiler. And that know, feel disenfranchised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and feel disenfranchised. Almost like somebody always so, has to lose. Yeah, but so, but I, but I worry that what what you end up doing then is by eliminating the electoral college, you seek to address the disenfranchisement or the feeling of disenfranchisement by some parties, some, some groups, by simply transferring that feeling of disenfranchisement to other groups. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't make that a bad transfer, but I don't know that it fixes the the feeling. And and to be clear, disenfranchisement means you don't get to vote, and everybody gets to vote, hopefully, legally, should. Mm-hmm. That is the law. Uh, so it's not real disenfranchisement, but the perception, the perception of exclusion. And I worry you just transfer that perception to another group. And sitting here on campus at Moody Bible Institute, you're, you're trying to transfer that to us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's better for the church. Maybe. But I don't know if it actually really solves the issue. So, again, my my instinct is conserve the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. My Mine is, too. I like the system. I think it's a good thing to have some balance of power when it comes to different states. Um, my sympathies tend to lean a little bit more in the um, economically left direction, culturally right uh, so I'm, I'm kind of sometimes politically homeless, um, but that's good. It's a good thing. Another option I've heard floated around. Huh? Should we talk about ranked choice voting? I what I was going to go to. Yeah, let's talk about ranked choice, rank choice voting. I've heard ranked choice voting advertised a lot. As uh, Alaska has this model. Nevada's voting on maybe incorporating that kind of model. Republicans don't like it because Sarah Palin lost. Uh, so what are your thoughts on ranked I, choice voting? I am a big, a big fan of the idea. Now, every good idea in politics sounds great until you implement it and then mm-hmm. things fall apart. That That is the nature of, of political change. There are going to be winners. There are going to be losers. And I do not yet fully understand who the winners and losers are with ranked choice voting. However, in principle, I like it. Uh, Alaska does it. Maine does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York City does it. Oh, yeah, and they did. That is how they ended up with the mayor that they have now, uh, who is a much more moderate mayor than what they might otherwise have ended up with. Yeah. Uh, and, and for that reason, because I'm a moderate and I think that ranked choice voting is going to allow moderates to win, uh, it matters. I, I'm a big fan of it. But it doesn't always. Again, first, we should explain what ranked choice voting is. There are four candidates for office. You yes. step into the voting booth, and instead of picking the one you want, you list it in tiers of first choice, third choice, second choice, third choice, fourth yeah. choice. You rank them. And then some computer does some or some kind of a uh, bunch of runoff elections, and the one who has the most uh, 
plurality amongst all the races is the one who wins. Yeah, if there are four candidates, you go in there and you rank them one to four, or one to three, your choice. You don't have to count anybody. Mm-hmm. You, you, you rank the four. You can rank up to all of them often, or maybe you rank your first three, four choices, whatever. But say there's four candidates and you rank them one through four. They sit down and they look only at first place votes. And whoever is in fourth place on first place votes is eliminated. And their voters, the people who wanted that fourth place candidate as their first choice, their ballots now get considered and redistributed. Well, your candidate's gone. Who was your second choice? And so now the second choices are reapportioned. Now someone else is eliminated, so you go down to only two, you reapportion that candidate's votes, and you move on that way. That technically should eliminate the uh, tactical voting system we have now, where you're voting for the party that closely aligns to your ideological views, even if you don't agree with it. So people voted for for Biden, even though they wanted Sanders, but they wanted to prevent a Trump victory. You're voting tactically instead of voting for what you actually believe in. You're you're voting for your lesser of two evils. Well, lesser of two evils is still evil. Uh, through this system, you can actually vote for the guy you want instead of the guy you think actually has the best chance of winning. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the idea. And it has allowed, to be clear, uh, Susan Collins in Maine and Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, two senators, uh, two Republican senators to tack more towards the center and to buck their party at times. Mm-hmm. They don't have to adhere to the Republican Party line because although they would, in a classical system, they would both get primaried from the right and they would lose and they'd be out of the Senate, right? The the MAGA extremist would come for them and would take them down. Because they use ranked choice voting, uh, the pro- you, you don't have to win a winner-take-all primary. There's usually three or four candidates. I think I think both of them do four, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong. There's four candidates on the general election ballot. And Murkowski and Collins with the name recognition are always going to make it into that final four. And as a result, they'll get a certain number of first-place choices, and they'll get a certain number of second-place choices. And, and it, it does advantage the moderate because the left-winger whose candidate is eliminated would much rather have the moderate Republican than the right-wing Republican. Similarly, the right-wing Republican whose candidate gets eliminated would much rather have the moderate leftist than the hard leftist. Yes. So it, it advantages moderates. It pulls everybody more towards the middle in theory. Uh, I like that. I, I think that that could help dial down the tone of our politics considerably. Uh, it eliminates the incentive for parties to operate on base strategies, right? The we, we talked about that earlier, the base strategy, trying to turn out your most motivated, most committed voters no longer becomes a winning electoral strategy. It, it almost completely kneecaps that idea. And I love that because it, it encourages people to reach out towards the middle. Um, so all, in all of those ways, it sounds fantastic. It should be said, because again, comparative politics, something I care deeply about. Uh, if we take a look at Australia, where ranked choice voting has been the way it's done for over 100 years, their politics are often phenomenally toxic and nasty. Oh, boy. But they also have compulsory voting. They do. They do. And the way that works is you can vote or you can pay a fine. So the idea is everybody should vote. You don't have to. You can just pay the fine. But, you know, I don't have money to burn like that. I'd vote. I vote anyway. But I would vote. Yeah. You know, you would vote, I assume. So compulsory voting, ranked choice voting, still have toxic politics. You have some insights on Australia for our listeners and for me, who's not too familiar with our friends down under. Well, you have uh, 
you have in recent years seen the introduction of a culture war into Australian politics. And the the prime minister that they had recently had, they, they've had, for one thing, okay, Australia has had a lot of turnover with prime ministers in the last 10 or 15 years. There has been somewhat rapid fluctuation. Also, because it's a prime minister instead of a, a president, there's always potential for... It, it's like the Speaker of the House. The, the easiest way to become Speaker of the House is to support someone more popular than you, help them become Speaker of the House, and then stab them in the back. It's easier than winning the mandate on your own. So there's a lot of betrayal and backstabbing within um, prime minister systems. Almost, it's, it's just almost the way it works. And, and that contributes significantly to the toxicity because it's Machiavellian in a way American politics is not. Uh, it is comparable to what happens in the United Kingdom. Again, Liz Truss is their prime minister right now. She's been prime minister as we record this for 38 days, 39 days maybe. Uh, she is unlikely to make it to the end of the year. Boris Johnson was for three years before her. Theresa May was for three years before that. Like they're, they're coming much quicker than the elections come in the UK. And Australia has had that. Uh, the culture wars came for Australia in recent years. Particularly, they had uh, a prime minister most most recently who was, I don't know if he was evangelical or just evangelical adjacent. And he, he did some shady stuff during COVID, secretly took more control over the government that nobody knew he was doing, assigned himself extra governmental roles that oh, nobody wow. knew he had. Um, just, it was odd. But the culture war came. Uh, evangelicals are even more out of step with Australian society on on uh, gay rights issues than what American evangelicals are. Not because Americans are and or Australians are more conservative than each other, but because Australian society is much more liberal in general. Uh, and so that prime minister has fallen. The new prime minister is Anthony Albanese or Anthony Albanese. He says he doesn't care how you say it. Apparently, um, and ranked choice voting did. He is considered more moderate. Ranked choice voting did bring him in. It did uh, hinge on the back of a lot of uh, moderate women voters in the Sydney area that rebelled against him, rebelled against their own party with the, the previous options. Um, I don't know. I don't know what kind of lessons we can draw from Australia. I just point to them and say ranked choice voting does not necessarily eliminate toxicity. Yeah. <sighs> it's a lot of complex solutions on the end. Uh, it looks like it's going to be my generation, your generation, as we inherit the mantle from the baby boomers. Uh, we're going to be left with a mess to fix things. We are. We are. The The good news is, is the generational transition will probably undermine Facebook's ability to swing elections since all of us under the age of 50 know Facebook is where the baby boomers go to spread conspiracy theories. Um, but I will notice that a lot of the most toxic figures in American politics these days, a lot of the people that I just wish would go away the most are from Generation X. Oh, boy. So I'm not convinced there's going to be a total generational reprieve. No, I don't think so. No, we're going to ruin it in our own way somehow. Guaranteed. Yeah. And then the next generation will fix our mess, as it's been for eternity. Maybe. Uh, the one thing that, that is true, right, is because generational cohorts, if, if you ascribe any validity to social analysis – on the basis of generational cohorts, which some people do not. I do. I, I think there's some validity to this. Uh, the millennial generation is the largest generation. And as the baby boomers, the next largest generation, continue to age and sadly expire, the size as a percentage of the electorate that is millennial 
will only be growing until they start dying off, right? Yeah. I guess you are you are a millennial. Technically, I'm Gen Z, but I'm right okay. there at the cutoff. Technically, you're Gen Z. Okay, so millennials uh, are going to dominate the future of American politics, and millennials are not deeply. I shouldn't say deeply polarized. They're not deeply polarized along partisan lines, mm-hmm. which is not the same as being unpolarized, but they are not as partisan affiliated as other generations have been. So it's hard to say what will happen, but the wind is going to blow in whatever direction the millennials want it to blow in because Generation X is very small. Generation Z is very small. It's going to be the millennials ball game increasingly in the years to come. So my generation will be underrepresented in this future probably. Yep. Great. Well, I mean, look at it. We've got, I mean, well, shoot, Biden's old. I think he's from the silent generation, not not even the boomers. But it's a miracle that there ever was a baby boomer president. Yeah. I mean, people know that Obama was a miracle for other reasons. America mm-hmm. actually voted a black man to be president. And I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime, certainly not as, as early as it did in my lifetime. But uh, getting a Generation X president was probably a one-off as well <laughs> because then the boomers took it right back. Who was that Generation X president? Was it, uh, let me think, Clinton? He was the first baby boom president, yeah. I thought it was, no, I thought it, was Ken, no, it wasn't Kennedy. No, no, no Kennedy fought on the yeah. war. He yeah, was, he's, he's, he's the he greatest made, generation. He made, he made the baby boomers. Yeah. yeah, World War II. Yeah, wow. Okay, just for theoretical sake, who do you think will be the first uh, millennial president? Do you think any of the current millennials in office stand a chance? No, no, not, I, I mean, well... They stand a chance because they're there. They'll have name recognition. They they have a leg up. But when I think of millennial politicians, the people who come to mind do not stand a chance. Um, You know, I don't know the age of Adam Kinzinger, but Adam Kinzinger is somebody who who has the, you know, he's he's a veteran. He's a moderate Republican. He's taken principled stands on things. There's there's a possibility, but he may be an Xer. I don't know. I think he's 35. 35, that'd put him, put him in the millennials. Yeah. So Kinzinger would, would be the, the strongest of a very weak field of candidates that I can think of off the top of my head. He'd never win the Republican nomination of the party the way he is now. They'd, they'd crucify him, literally. Uh, the way it is now. But again, not, anything can change. Everything. Politics does not stay. It doesn't stand still. It doesn't stay the same. It will never be the, the, same, the same crop of people forever. No. Well... Unless Pelosi and Trump never die. <laughs> you never that's, know. <laughs> it's, poss- it's honestly possible. There was a picture of her uh, meeting President Kennedy when she was young. She was literally in politics that long. Yeah. I think she's been promising to resign or, or at least retire as speaker for a very long time. And then you got what? Uh, Deanne Feinstein in California who's been there for what? An entire century? Yeah. Going senile, according to media reports. Wow. Oh. Not the first senator to stay in office past the point where they even knew they were in office and their staff do all the work for them. If you're not familiar with them, Google Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms. <laughs> yeah. I laugh because I have some familiarity with uh, Strom Thurmond. Wasn't he in there until like 2003 or something? Yeah. It wasn't It wasn't clear that he or Helms even knew their name by the end. Uh, Strom was from South Carolina, wasn't he? Yep. Yeah, he, he was staunch for, segregationist. Yes, yes, he ran for uh, the nomination against uh, I think it was Truman actually, President Truman and uh, Dewey. Yeah. It was uh, the states' rights party uh, to fight against segregation and uh, equal rights. 
Yeah. In there till 2003. Stay, stayed in office well into my adult and even voting life. He, I think he even mentored Joe Biden for a bit. That's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I have no words but questions on that one. He was a, a staunch segregationist, as was Jesse Helms, just mm-hmm. anachronistic racist creatures of the South who stayed there way past the point where their viewpoints were out of step, even with the mainstream of their states. But based on tradition, power, and name recognition, they were immovable. Yeah. They were just there forever. What was that guy's name? The other one who ran for the American Independent Party. Um, you thinking of George Wallace? If he wasn't assassinated, he could have easily probably been a... Well, he wasn't assassinated. No, George Wallace wasn't assassinated. Who am I thinking uh-huh. He was tempted. If he lived a little longer, he probably could have been in the same area as, uh, what's his face, uh, Strom Thurmond, maybe. I don't know. He had a lot of popular support. Yeah. He apparently became a Christian at the end of his lifetime. Uh, Repented from his racist views. Yeah, I saw an interview. I saw an interview. He uh, called in an African-American who worked for him and who was paid to say what he was told to say to talk about how not racist he was. Race questions. Oh, boy. I said earlier, we need to be a people who forgive and we need to be a people who forget. But man, how do you ever really know when, when, when all you have to adjudicate something is, is media? You, yeah. you have to know a person. And in politics, we don't really have the opportunity to know people. And that's one of the reasons why it's so destructive to put too much hope, too much faith, too much confidence, too much identity in politics is because it's all just how much marketing do you believe? Mm-hmm. And it's it's why that what what matters are the relationships that we build in our churches and in our daily lives. Exactly, that's all that it is. Politics is just marketing. It's propaganda. It's artificial reality guided by the invisible hand to control the uh, movements of trends and and the way of the market. It's all money driven, power driven. <laughs> I would disagree that it has to be that way. I would disagree that it has always been that way. I will concede that it may actually be that way these days. I recently read Bernays's propaganda, so I'm a little bit more up. Uh, Cynical towards the idea of it. So, yeah. Well, we're at almost two hours. This has been a wonderful conversation. What are we missing? Hmm. Well, we started off with polarization as identity and, and as combat. And we've talked a lot about identity. We haven't really talked about combat. And, you know, one, one thing, again, Bringing it back to a, a, the perspective of faith, one thing I hear, I know you, you have mentioned the number of people who see Donald Trump as a messianic figure. And I, I didn't really say anything when you said that, but I, for the record, I agree with that assessment. But one thing that is true of Trump and has been true of other politicians and will be true of more politicians in my lifetime is that people sometimes embrace toxic and combative politis, politics and politicians because they want somebody to fight for them and to punish their enemy. Mm-hmm. And if we want to think critically about uh, what the Christian's response to identity and combat in politics should be, it is this. You, brother or sister in Christ, are not undefended. You do not mm. need somebody to fight for you. And if you go out seeking somebody to fight your battles for you, who is not your risen Savior who already died for you and has already won the victory for you, 
then you are, in giving that role which is his to someone else, you are committing idolatry. So the question of combat and identity have to be very linked in the Christian's understanding because part of our identity is that we already have our combatant. He's there. He protects us. And as Paul tells us very clearly, he often calls us, in fact, Paul would say, blesses us with suffering. And if politics goes away, we hate. If politics goes away, we fear. If the midterm elections have turned out as a worst-case scenario for you, dear listener, recognize that God is in control. God has chosen for it to go this way. And what's more, he's still there. He still cares about you. He's still protecting you. Mm. You are not undefended. And we do not need to seek a champion to fight for us. We have our champion. Amen. Couldn't have said it better myself. (sighs) We have our champion. Vengeance is of the Lord. Not saying that our politics have to be vengeful, but the world's going to go the way it goes. We may be in a state of decay. We may be in a state of maybe potential resurgence and prosperity. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you want to talk scientifically, at some point the universe is going to contract and the sun is going to devour the earth. Uh, If you want to speak scientifically, uh, how that plays into biblical parallels, you can judge what you will. But I will say at some point the heavens and the earth will be remade. We'll see how that goes. At the end of the day, everything is going to be okay. Better than okay. Better than perfect, almost. God wins. He reigns. The new Jerusalem comes. The giant cube. This is not just okay. Yep. The the ending of the story is pretty good. I say that's a perfect ending, but the giant cube is descending from the earth and the new Jerusalem. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. This episode thus concludes this uh, podcast. Meet Me in the Middle is now over. I am going to go graduate. Dear listener, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for hearing my guests and I out throughout the course of this podcast. I have poured my passion into this work, and I hope at the very least I have encouraged you to find new ways to think outside of the box and see our fellow Americans in a more positive light. In the coming months, I plan to launch a new podcast on XN Radio. Stay tuned because I'm very excited for this new upcoming project. In a similar style to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill by Christianity Today, I want to deconstruct Christian fascism and analyze its roots and what has made it so appealing. I didn't mention it much in this podcast, but I was very influenced by these ideals coming to faith via the internet. I had a mediated reality presented to me that took captivity of my faith, and thankfully, by the grace of God, I was liberated from. This future project is coming out of a need to share my own experience and help others to share their own. With that said, I want to leave you with a final exhortation. As Christians, it's not our place to reclaim the culture. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christians should pursue and exalt truth in journalism. As our God is not one of confusion, as we engage in our American struggle Whether it is against the tyrannies of fascism, socialism, or Christian nationalism, we must remember the example of Jesus Christ. He ministered underneath the heel of Roman imperialism, the audacious disrespect of his God, and woeful national and economic humiliation to his people. Rather than incite his fellow Jews to revolt, he taught them the way to the Father. 
As our nation descends into decay, it is our commission to be the anti-chaos, this fractitious political divide. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, whether they are a socialist, fascist, or a moderate. The blood of Christ is shed for them as much as it has for you. We are to be forgiving of past mistakes, critical of harsh judgments and biases, caring to always hold our fellow Americans and fellow Christians to a higher esteem than one the political pundits rather have us believe. Our enemy is not in the political menace, but rather the temptation to abandon the way of Christ in love and truth to that of futile revolutionary fervor. Go forth and love deeply. Until next time.